Hello everyone. I am particularly excited today. Still waking up, still quite tired, but uh, I'm going to keep this very short. I intended on publishing this episode yesterday, and then I realized what today was. October 12th is exactly a year since I started the podcast, since I published episode one, and I could not think of a more appropriate guest for the year anniversary than business coach, composer, instructor, podcaster, Mr. Garrett Hope. The reason why is because in 2015, I discovered Garrett's podcast, which at the time was called Composer on Fire. Now it's called the Portfolio Composer Podcast. And Garrett started that podcast because he wanted to um, help musicians find, learn how to start uh, their, their business as a musician. How do you take the craft you learned in college and turn it into a viable income? So after years of doing it, he has hundreds of episodes where he talks to composers, performers, website designers, business coaches, um, all different types of people to help what he calls people learn uh, the business side of composing. So um, today's episode, episode 23, on the year anniversary of the Making Noise podcast, features Garrett Hope. Uh, as I said, I'm keeping this short today. And part of the reason why is because Garrett has a, a very exciting announcement, which you're going to hear right now. I hope you enjoy. Hey there. My name is Dr. Garrett Hope. I am a composer, coach, podcaster, and speaker. I've been focused on building my music business since 2014 and helping others build theirs since 2015. I want to tell you about the second annual Ultimate Music Business Summit we are organizing. It'll take place early January of 2022. There will be dozens of presentations with highly actionable content, all of it available to you so you can start your business, grow your business, and ultimately make more money. Because here's the deal. Unless you earn all of your income from an employer, you are a self-employed small business owner. And if you want to do more than survive, if you want to grow your audience, or if you want to impact more people, you have to think and act like a business owner. And that means this summit is for you. This summit will give you real-world, not theoretical, strategies you can implement immediately. You don't need to be stuck with fear or living in your failures. I promise you. With all the teachers lined up, you will get something you've never thought of before. Even though building a business is hard, no one is promising it's easy. It is possible. You just need the right tools and strategies. Tickets for this virtual event will go on sale soon. To be the first in line and to get more information about the summit, presenters, and more, go to musicsummit.biz. That's musicsummit.biz and add your email to the list. My name is Adam Kanaw. And I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. That's something um, I I haven't yet done that with my podcast where I link it into a DAW um, for the audio. Part of the reason why is because um, I have serious latency issues with, I use Reaper. Oh yeah, I use Reaper. I I just switched to Reaper. Oh really? Yeah. What uh what spawned the switch? So there's this uh, a, a listener of the podcast years ago started supporting me and like helping me and he he's a composer and a professional mixer who lives outside of Atlanta and he essentially became my mixing coach and he taught me 
how to make my mixes better because they were crap, right? So he's like <laughs> been helping me learn how to improve my audio production. And he then has come on board and he mixes and edits all the podcasts. And he's always like, why are you still in Pro Tools? You don't believe that BS about Pro Tools being the industry standard. And he's always trying to get me to switch to Logic or Reaper. And I'm like, I just don't want to spend 250 bucks or whatever it is to go to Logic. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll try Reaper. And this spring, I just made the switch because my license expired on Pro Tools. I mean, I still have it, but, you know, I was on the renewable every year thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a big project coming up. I did this short film, like a 35-minute one. So I was like, I'm going to dive in, and I'm going to do this whole film in Reaper. So I learned Reaper. And I, I kind of fell in love with it. Like, there's still some things I'm figuring out, uh, and I've recorded a few podcast episodes in it, but it's great. And for 60 bucks for the full license, you can't beat it. That's not bad at all. <laughs> I know. Why, like, why do you use Reaper? Uh, I use it because it was um, the, the default that I had. Well, not the default. I'm going to fix my camera a little bit. Uh, see, that looks a little bit better. Um, I use Reaper because my, my laptop never had a DAW or... Not that laptops come with them, but well, no, I guess uh, Apple does, right? Like Mac comes with Garage or has GarageBand. Yeah, but does GarageBand really count? <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it in the category. It's a. Uh, it's a good starter. It does its job for it does, the. Yeah, it has a know. place. Yes. <laughs> um, have you heard of the website Coursera? Yes. Uh, I did a a electronic music like course on that years ago. Okay. And um, to do the course, we had to download Reaper. And so I downloaded the trial at the time. And, uh, and I just, I've had it since. It was like 2015, I think it was. And, and that's what I've, I've just worked with. So um, I, I definitely don't, I do not know like the ins and outs or, uh, you know, like my, my, like what you were saying about mixing and all that stuff. I'm, I'm still trying to understand like EQing and, <laughs> when to put on like i don't know uh, a compressor and all this other stuff and you know who's who's the uh your mixing co the guy who does the mixing for you so his name's ej sadler EJ i don't know if he like i don't he, he'll, he's probably gonna feel weird that i'm talking about him he's that kind of guy <laughs> um but if you go to let me just open up one any of the podcast episodes at the very bottom it'll say mixed by and it has a link to his studio site, um, but the guy's just amazing. I mean, he he's um, often on location doing um, film recording work, like live work work, and then he does a whole bunch of post stuff, editing. And one of his big passions actually is Halloween and the macabre. I mean, this guy loves horror. <laughs> so as a composer. He actually has a side business called Graveyard Tracks where he, he's the kind of person that creates the ambient music that goes in like um, haunted houses, right? Oh, that's cool. And these things are like 20, 30 minute long tracks. And he's mm. like, they're all mapped out with um, like different parts. It's not just ramble. And, and so right now, actually what I'm working on compositionally is I'm helping him out. So I'm taking some of his thematic ideas for this new track for this Halloween, and I'm going to orchestrate it out into something, at least for a moment, like a, uh, 
a full treatment rather than, <sighs> you know it's really exciting it's kind of fun what? but his studio is studio 184 so if you go to studio 184.us that's the guy mm. um, and he's just the best is that something that he offers to most people or is it just an instance for you where he was like hey you're a good guy i want to help you out garrett well, I do have the ability to bamboozle people. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a good trait, to, a good skill to have. <laughs> I, I guess. I, I think he would be open to the idea. I know mm-hmm. I don't want to speak for him. He doesn't necessarily offer it on his white oh, website, though. He does have a save my mix session. Um, Fix my mix is what he calls it, where he'll sit down with you and give you a one on one and go through your session like not just listening to the file, but like in in whatever DAW you're in. And he'll say, okay, this is why it's sounding like this. These are the things you can do to make it better. And he's got that on his on his website. So yeah, he's absolutely I think people should re- reach out to him. This this is like a skill set that I think is becoming progressively more necessary for musicians. Is is 100%. recording and mixing. I mean, I know in um uh, I think I have it over there. Yeah, in Beyond's Talent, in uh, um, Angela Beeching's book. Angela Beeching's books. Like I, I recall, there was a chapter in there that talked about recording and whatnot. But that was in 2008 when it was first published, you know. And I know she's updated it since then. But uh, now, I mean, especially with the pandemic and all the other stuff, it's like understanding hardware and knowing, like, like I was saying before, like how to EQ and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it seems like such a more important thing that someone like EJ is, is uh, has that valuable skill set at this time, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, there's no excuse for a musician of any type right now to not know how to get good audio. You you have to. Now, like the, the, the fine, like the finessing details of compression and EQ and all that, that's a that's a skill set that can be learned and it's a higher level thing. But because, like you said, the pandemic forced most of us to move what we're doing online, meaning we have to use mics and interfaces. And a lot of people are learning this. They learned it for the first time 18 months ago, right? But you still have to know how to set your volume right, how to capture good sound. If you're a, a teacher on an instrument, where do you place the microphone? And then there's deeper level things when you get to the mixing, like what EQ do you need to do where and when and for how much? And so, yeah, yes, I'm in a hundred percent agreement with you. And I think Angela Beeching was right. Whether you're a composer and you're just creating your own demos, you can't just hit export from Sibelius finale or Dorico, you know, that just, they never, it just never sounds right. Uh, Or you're a film composer or media or whether you um, are a performer, like why don't you know how to mix and edit your own recordings or make your own recordings? So it, I think it's a required skill now. Yeah, completely. Uh, especially like with performers too. Um, yep. The the most you know how readily available it is to just put something out there on YouTube or on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and and like having that extra little. Uh, level of quality to it by by knowing how to, okay i got the mic set in the right position that's a great start you know <laughs> yeah yes and i guarantee you most people have the microphones in the wrong place 
Mm. <laughs> when they're recording their instruments. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, my um my girlfriend plays the oboe mm. and she she purchased this Yeti mic, which I'm now using. Um, she purchased this Yeti mic when the online classes was, you know, more of a thing. And she bought it uh hoping that it would work for recording the oboe. <laughs> it's not the case. <laughs> The the partials on, on the oboe are, are a little bit too powerful. Even when you play quietly, it clips really easily. Does it? Yeah, yeah. Is that just a USB mic? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you, you do have to match the mic to the source. And it, it all, in the end, though, it, it costs a lot of money to yeah. experiment and find the right stuff. So having someone like an EJ who can shortcut the process and it can be like okay what's your budget this is what you need to get <laughs> yeah. and then at least in my case when he tells me garrett you, you need to get this plug in or you need to get this mic i usually just say okay <laughs> yeah right you're the expert yeah. I'm, I'm following your lead <laughs> yeah and the quality of the stuff i'm putting out i think has greatly improved mm-hmm. mm. Yeah, totally. I've I've been listening to uh, since it was Composer on Fire. Uh, oh. I think when you had uh, Jason Eckhart on was the first episode oh, that, that I heard. A long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and definitely like the quality of the podcast has skyrocketed undoubtedly. I got to give most of that credit to EJ for coming in and um, <laughs> polishing the turds I sometimes give him. You know. <laughs> It sounds so much better, but he, he goes in and not just EQ and mastering, right. Making it ready to go, but he, he takes out breath sounds and the lip smacks all the ums and ahs so that when you're listening, it's highly polished. That the lip smack thing is something that when I started this podcast, I like, I very briefly researched, what are some things that people like, like listeners of podcasts don't want to hear? And lip smack was like at the top of that list. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 when I put the audio into Reaper, I look for, you can find it very easily. It's like a very narrow, big spike in the, in the uh, sound wave. (laughs) One thing that drives me crazy as a listener is when they don't put a DSer on the podcast. And if you have someone with a very sibilant voice, male or female, but in the really high register on their S's, it, it just it pierces my eardrum. And it, it's an easy fix, right? Just put a DSer plug-in on the thing. <laughs> It'll help it a lot. That's that's so true. Um, it's it's really interesting. Like it makes me think about when I when I was younger and I started doing landscaping. Mm. Whenever I would go by someone's yard and I would see that it wasn't cut, I would I would be like, they need to fix that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> You start to notice these things the more you 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 are you know uh, starting some new hobby or whatever it is like you start to see it everywhere. Yes, yeah. Even um, and I don't know if you've noticed this because you do a lot of audio editing for your podcast, right? You're listening to voices, but now when I'm watching a film, I I can hear sometimes when they've moved from the live dialogue to ADR. You you know what ADR is. I don't know. I can't remember what the letters stand for, but often when they're filming, um, the action on set is too loud. So they'll go into the studio and the actor will re-record the dialogue 
and then um the the actor has the the job of trying to sync up with their voice while they're watching themselves right but then the mixer has to match that audio to the ambient noises all around it mm. i mean the skill level of a really well done movie is crazy but if you're paying attention you'll hear small changes in the quality of the audio or the timbre of the voice or the room sound will change for just a moment and that's because they went in and punched in that phrase or that word or that whatever and i'm starting to hear these things now even while i'm watching movies that's funny i i, I know what you're talking about too especially with movies that are either dubbed uh in a different language yes yeah. or um or yeah like like you can hear it um, what movie was you ever see Major Pain with Damon Wayans? Oh, maybe a long time ago. Yeah, from the, it's from the nineties. Um, there's there's a bunch of scenes in that where it's so obvious that they overdid they you know they did voiceovers later on in post production, um, and and you hear that and you're like ah, that's a little painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they could have hired a better engineer, <laughs> made it yeah, better. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Oh, well. It's yeah, you know, but you you work with what you have for the most part. I mean, oh yeah. What what is what is something with um with the mixing that you've been learning from uh uh e I'm sorry, what's that e EJ? EJ, yeah. EJ, yeah. So where where have you where would you how do I ask this? Like where would you put yourself at this point with your understanding of mixing and like um knowing what needs to be fixed or or feeling confident in like, you know, oh, this is a, this is a good mix versus like all oh, that crap that was from, you know, yesterday or something. <laughs> well, my first response is to say, I think I know enough to get it pretty good, but not great. And I, I, I also know enough to know that it's not great. And there's some extra thing that someone like ej can do i mean these people they spend more on their monitors than i've spent on my whole setup right like they're they they can hear these things that i literally can't hear part of it's my equipment and part of it is just you know i, I haven't learned how to hear it um but i've i've grown a lot like one thing the first thing that ej taught me is that i'm not cutting enough frequencies so talking about EQ, especially when I'm using virtual instruments and like my like film scores or the demos I make, uh, I, I now go in and the first thing I do is a high pass filter and I get rid of everything below the bottom note of whatever instrument that is. Because all that stuff, even though you're not playing sound, there's, there's a kind of a low level noise that's always present or even some subharmonic frequencies that might resonate and that builds up. And so my mixes were really muddy and it was hard to balance certain instruments properly. And as soon as I started to cut properly, all of a sudden things made more sense. And that's just the first step of many, but I, I hope I'm answering your question. I think I would never sell my services as a mixer. We'd say that. <laughs> uh, but I, I think I know what I'm doing more and more and I'm always practicing. And then I always send the mixes to EJ and he'll be like, Oh, okay. Well here, you want to add like, you know, six decibels at whatever 14 K. I'm like, how do you hear how, 
and then it sounds better. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly my thought about that too. I mean, like with my friends who do recording and mixing and stuff like that, and they'll, they'll be able to tweak it or hear things that I'm like, how did you, how did you know to do that? Or, or that that was an issue that needed to be resolved. Yeah. Well, I think they've just learned to hear it. I have a, a book, um, Shoot, what is it? When I was teaching music technology, I got this book, and I wish I could remember the name of it right now, but it it's like a, an ear training class for mix engineers. And so the, the, the accompanying audio will have, say, um, pink noise or something within a band. And the, the tests are, okay, can you identify which frequency range this is happening in? Oh, my God. So you actually, you can train yourself to learn to hear the problem frequencies. And, you know, I, I can, if, if something's feeding back, I can fix that. But I, I know generically how to make something more or less boxy, like the use of the mid-range or to give something more power or clarity, like where to where to put that. Um, but these guys like EJ, they can hear the whole mix and they can pick out a specific instrument and they can identify that problem, which I just don't have. But honestly, I don't know if I want to learn that skill. I have so many other things I want to do with my life. I am happy to have someone like EJ in my life who can do this. Because he's way better than I will ever be, and I want to get—I want to continue growing in the areas where I'm, you know, investing my time. I like learning new things, but there's also a cost-benefit analysis I've done where it's like I could put in the time to try to become as good as him, but then I would have to sacrifice some of these other things I'm working on, and I'm not sure I want to do that. That's that's exactly uh, a really good point, and and transition into the whole idea of of how much time you're spending on the things you need to be spending on Mm -hmm. and prioritizing and stuff um outsourcing right yeah outsourcing the things that you you might not need to really be you know worrying about or or thinking about and put that into the hands of a professional yes other than your own you know time and and effort (laughs) (laughs) well I think there's something to be said for knowing the basics so that if you didn't have someone in the moment, you could get something done, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But for the most part, when I outsource something, it's because I don't want to do it or I can't do it. And the people I'm going to hire to do it can do it faster and cheaper. So if my time is worth X amount of dollars per hour, and I can hire someone at that rate or less to do what I need to do, that frees that hour up for me to be more productive in another way. So so you're comparing it against what you would typically charge for that amount of time. That's one way to think about it. Yeah. It's like when I, when I do my taxes for the last seven or eight years, I've worked with an accountant because it just got to the point once I started like forming LLCs and the businesses and it just got so complicated depreciation schedules and all that stuff that, yeah, I could sit down with TurboTax or something and I could figure it out, but it takes me hours. (laughs) 
and I hate it. I mean, I just detest the process. So instead, I can pay this guy four to five hundred dollars every year to do it. It's done right. And if there is an issue, um, if the IRS decides to audit me, the person I'm with, they're going they back me up, right? Like that's part of it. Whereas if I did it by myself, I then I'm up a creek. And so, yeah, that's a lot of money, but it's also a whole lot of stress I don't have to deal with. I mean, we talked about how musicians have to have some like basic technology. You do. And I think musicians also need to know how to do their taxes, which I could do if I need. To. But I'm also I want to do higher level things, right? Like I, I can I could do my taxes if I must, but I could serve more people and help others in more ways with the time that I'm saving by not doing my taxes. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. You're, you're able to allocate the time and energy to the places where uh, it seems most fit for you and the people that you're working with or for, and then, and then leaving everything else, like, you know, out outsourcing, right? Like putting it out to other people like, okay, I got to take care of stuff over here. I'm writing this piece for this choir. It's going to be awesome. You can do my taxes. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, I'd have to say, all right, I'm not going to be able to get to that piece for another week or two, which I don't want to do, right? Yeah. That'd be terrible. That, that That's like completely compromising so much about your artistic uh, expression and capabilities and identity. Yeah. Try, trying to like... Uh, fit everything into like, yeah, that's just spreading yourself too thin. I think so. We always, there's a struggle with being, um, a real expert in a single domain or kind of being a Jack or Jill of all trades, right. Being able to do all things. And there's, I think there's value in, in both, but at the end of the day, I only have so many hours, right. And I have to choose how I'm going to spend that. And I want to move the needle in certain ways. And if I'm choosing activities that are going to take that away, then I don't, I don't feel good about the work I'm doing. And I'm not seeing the progress that I've committed myself to. And so when I do outsource or when I, when I work with others who can come alongside me and, and help me do what I'm doing better... I feel like it's it's a win, not just for me, but these people are doing what they do too. In the same way I'm serving others, they're serving me and I'm paying them for their time. And so I don't, it's like we're all helping each other in a way, but it's not like we're just like in a circle where we're just kind of passing the same money around. Instead, it, it, goes, it goes out bigger and I think it amplifies. Right. There's a sort of uh, ecosystem. Absolutely, there is. I mean, like, okay, it, the greatest definition of capitalism is management of scarce resources, right? And, and you kind of gave the definition yourself where you're looking at your time and your money and you're saying, how am I going to manage this right? That, that's, that's the heart of, of taking a scarce resource, time, money, whatever your knowledge and figuring out the best use for it at that time to maximize whatever it is you want to do, 
whether that's making sure that you have time to compose the piece to reach your deadline or um, investing in a relationship like with your spouse. That time management is the same as financial management in that way. And that's that's kind of how capitalism works and it creates this economy. And so when I'm making those decisions and I say, okay, well, I'm going to, I have decided that my time is worth so much and I want to allocate my resources in such such a way so that I can do this project. I'm going to pay that accountant to do my taxes. Then that creates a new economy. That person has his business and he can serve other clients at the same time. And it just it it filters out. It just doesn't come back in the circle or anything like that. It it's way bigger than me. It's way bigger than me and him. It's it's well, it impacts our whole city ultimately, like the, the webs and the networks that we have and the way we serve and help each other. I hope that's making sense. This is making so much sense. Yeah. I mean, I, it's so, it's so cool to hear uh, you talk about that because it, <clears throat> it's sort of, not only are you, are you, um, you know, putting, putting money towards people who are, whether they're experts or just exceptional at what they do and can provide a really great product for you. Um, you're allowing yourself the, the 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 time and energy to to pursue whatever you you need to and want to. You know, like we were saying a moment ago, uh, artistically, especially with composing, which is like such a um, at times rigorous process. You know, is, yeah. And the creative energy, the mental energy of <laughs> sitting alone in a room and like, yeah, trying to create this thing from nothing. Well, you know, from composing, like when you're really in it, when you're in the flow and you get through like a three hour composing session, at least for me, I can be mentally and emotionally just drained. Mm -hmm. Right? Have you experienced that? Absolutely. Put everything into into this music. And if then if I had to turn around and apply that same level high thinking or the same amount of high level thinking, let's say it like that, into preparing my taxes, I, it's just not going to go well. <laughs> That uh, sounds terrible. <laughs> right? And, and so this is, again, a scarce resource. I have so much time. I have so much energy. And uh, like that that's why I also get up early in the morning to do my composing. Because I'm freshest, I'm at the highest energy, and everyone else in the house is asleep. So I'm completely undisturbed. It's, it's so funny hearing you say this because this is exactly how I operate with composing. <laughs> It has, like for, if it doesn't happen first thing in the morning, it's harder for me to do it later in the day. Yes, it is. Yep. And then I'm I'm in my inbox, and I hate my inbox because it's just like I can't keep up, right? And then I've got to call so and so. I've got to go pick up the kid from school. The dog needs to go outside, and it just goes on and on and on. And mm. it gets harder and harder to separate my mental and emotional energy into writing the music. Ah, oh, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, separating the emotional and uh, mental energy. Yeah, that that makes that's exactly what it is. I and I, I've said this before on the podcast, but like for me, part of it is what you're saying is is as the day goes on, it's like all these experiences that happen, like conversations with people, uh, like seeing things on social media, on the news, uh, having to pay a bill or something like that, and then all of a sudden it's like okay, it's six o'clock at night. Uh, I didn't compose yet. Let me compose. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you're completely distracted, right? Completely distracted, and so weighed down from all of that. Yeah, 
it's wow that I, I haven't thought of it like that so much that's that's such a concise way of putting it the emotional mental energy just oh, well, being drained I, it, it kind of just came out <laughs> <laughs> so th this is kind of like this might be too general of a question but was there was there a point where you started to where you you realized you have to start scheduling your days in a specific way and to kind of tack onto that um with composing like did you always compose in the morning or did you or was that another thing where it's like okay i need to schedule my day in a certain way in order to best uh optimize my energy and all that stuff does that make sense i think so um i don't remember like making a decision um i've almost always been a morning person mm. so orienting my uh biggest creative moments towards the beginning of the day just felt natural uh, but as as i grew uh professionally and as the family grew and the kid got older it, it also just made more sense for the reasons we've been discussing um and kind of settled into a, a really nice pattern that way because i i want to give my best ability towards writing music and i'm at my best first thing in the morning and i know some people are best late at night more power to you and sometimes i stay up late at night and do stuff too but i'm convinced that there's something on waking up and the mind is clear and free and i'm not bogged down with the news like you said or whatever because honestly the news just sucks right sometimes and and i don't want that to cloud my ability to express whatever i want to express musically so i'm not sure i'm really answering your question or i'm giving you an answer you want but i, I for me it just felt like the right choice and I've kind of just continued to live into it. An ideal day for me, I usually get up like a quarter to five and then I'll, I'll hit brew on the coffee pot and then I do some meditation and reading and praying and I try to read like a chapter a day or something of whatever book I'm reading. Usually something about economics or something <laughs> and then and and then I compose until the family gets up. So Wow, four, quarter to five in the morning. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> Garrett, you are a champ, man. That's <laughs> what I do. But I, I also can, I have found that I can be okay on like six hours of sleep a night. Left my own devices, I'll sleep like eight hours. But if I could just do like six every night, I'm I'm totally fine. What What is your usual bedtime? Like what time do you usually? Uh... Between 10 and 10.30. 10 and 10.30? Yeah. That's a good time. That seems like a really good time to, uh, yeah. Because my my personal my own perspective is that like, I don't I, after eight o'clock or eight thirty, I'm like I, I don't need to be working, whatever that means too. Like sending emails and stuff, I don't want to be working. Yeah, you know. And um, part of it for me too, though, is like it. I I have trouble sleeping, so if I continue doing stuff throughout the day, by the time I have to go to bed, I I can't sleep because my mind is just. Oh really? Oh yeah, yeah. I I like that, Adam, and I try to implement it too, but so I I often fail. <laughs> yeah. I'm often like, oh, well, there's like just oh, one more email or whatever. Something that's helped is um, during the pandemic, I picked up woodworking as a hobby. 
Oh, I love that. I, I've, I've been so interested in that for a long time. And so I started making instruments. And like last summer, well, at the start of the pandemic, I said to my wife, I said, okay, we all need a pandemic hobby. What do you want to do? We're all, we're going to just send some, we're going to spend some money. We're going to invest. And I, I'm going to make a Telecaster. And I had made some kit guitars and I was, I loved it, but I wanted to make one from scratch. So I made a Telecaster from scratch and now I'm making a P base. I have a neighbor who owns a mill and he milled these beautiful figured walnuts trees on his property in Iowa. And he gave me like $300 worth of beautiful black walnut. And I've been making crib boards and all this other stuff. Now I'm making this great P base out of it. And, and I just before I got on the call with you, I spent like 45 minutes sanding down an acoustic guitar. I'm building two acoustic guitars, one for my brother-in-law and one for me. And so I to like at the end of the day, the way I can turn it off is like I'm going to go and just make some sawdust. And that's what I say <laughs> to my family. I'm going to make some sawdust and you get kind of sweaty and dirty and tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's great, like the smell of the wood and you're making something. And, you know, you said you did landscaping. Yeah. Like, I love that. I love yard work, too, because you get to the end and you're like, do you see that? I did that. Right. And even though I, I, I'm a composer and I love composing, a lot of that work is in my mind. And I can get to the end of the day. I'm like, well, here's four new bars. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. it, just, it doesn't quite have that same thing. But when I when I'm making building especially with the wood you can you can see the progress and it's wonderful that's that's exactly it i mean um there's a there's a sort of tangible product at the end of it right yeah absolutely mm -hmm. well i i've i have this weird enjoyment of shoveling snow like you too, huh <laughs> yeah like and i think that's part of it is is what especially like you know, where I grew up in, in northwestern New Jersey, we, we got plenty of snow most winters, right? And on the winters where we would get like two feet or whatever it was, I loved shoveling out my car and just seeing like these tunnels around the side of my car with the snow piled up high above it. And like, it's like, look at that. Look at all this space I made. <laughs> yeah. I love doing that too. I love putting on a podcast and just going outside and getting to work that's so that's so funny um it's an interesting thing like yeah mowing lawns and like even when you do just one strip and you look back and you can see all the high grass amongst this single strip that was cut and yep. you're like oh that looks so good yeah I, I don't know i guess it's just that like like yeah like i i created this thing i did that and and now it looks better or, or it sounds better or feels better yeah it's yeah it's that you said it, the tangible thing. Um, and I love music, right? I've de dedicated my whole career to it, but so much of it is not tangible. Mm -hmm. It's ephemeral. And that's part of what makes music so beautiful because it's there and then it's not. And we can capture that with a recording, but the recording doesn't capture all of it, right? That's why a live performance is magical. Yeah. And I, I kind of live for those moments. But <laughs> when I'm home alone composing in my studio or just practicing my guitar, it it's hard to get to the end of the day and say, I feel good with the work I did. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's very like 
the majority of your time is spent doing something at home yeah. or or let me rephrase that the the uh the minority of your time is experiencing those moments with the music yeah when you write yeah. a piece and then you have that ephemeral experience right right it's so it's so infrequent that you need to have something to kind of maintain that uh life is good feeling you know <laughs> well at least i do <laughs> and you know i i'm fortunate also to to have a family and and other like things i think that's why we like having a, a community friends you can go out with otherwise if you just like a hermit it i'm not sure that's gonna help in the long run um but i had a teacher once say you know you go to a baseball game and a baseball game can be three to four hours long for that one double play or the grand slam right and it's like 30 seconds of great action but that's the whole game you live for it and and some people will sit through an entire opera for the one aria that just grabs them and that's what came to my mind when you said, you know, we do this thing called music and we put all this time in for those few moments, the minority moments, how you said it. Yeah. Wow. That's true about, especially with baseball games, like they can be quite long or like you said, like an opera. Yeah. Operas usually aren't, unless it's a micro opera, they're not like 20 minutes, you know, or even less than that. <laughs> well, especially if we take like the, the romantic operas that it can be, three to four hours long themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you know the composer Alan Belkin? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just had him on, on the podcast and, and we, we talked about uh, the book thinking fast and slow. I think it's oh, called. Oh yeah. Daniel Kahneman, right? Yes. The Nobel prize for that, I think. Yeah. And, and Alan was saying how it's so interesting. If, if you've seen Alan's work as a, as an instructor, like, he talks a lot about the experience of music and how to understand what features go into making uh, a, a good piece of music. Like, like what's a good beginning? How do you effectively transition from one idea to the next? Um, you know, continuity versus discontinuity and all that stuff. And he said he, he, he started thinking about this stuff more after reading that book and reading a specific section where the, uh, the author talked about getting a colonoscopy and <laughs> and he was saying that the, i think it was a study or something that people who got colonos colonoscopies um they remembered the things that they remember the most about it was uh what did he say exactly oh i'm gonna say the wrong thing and, and it's in the episode too <laughs> um Something like the thing that stood out most to them is what they remembered the most. Mm. So like if it was an overwhelming feeling of uh, discomfort, that, and it was only for a moment, that was what they remembered. And Alan heard that and he was like, huh, like this overwhelming, you know, you, you, you recognize this one moment that was a big deal, but it only lasted for a moment. That's like in music, <laughs> there's like a climax or like the way that the piece begins or ends and we remember that thing. Right, out of the whole thing, we only remember this one. Yeah, it's like you say Beethoven five and people think of that opening motive. Yes. You know, 
um this that that came to my mind when you when you were just talking about uh um Oh, now I now I now I lost. I forgot what you were saying. <laughs> Going to the whole baseball game for the one double. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. It's the same idea, exactly. Yeah, that's real. I like how he phrased that. I came across um, Alan's work a long time ago because he's put a lot of his stuff out into the world for free. For free. Like when I was first teaching composition lessons i didn't really know how to teach composition it's a hard it's not i've taught guitar lessons a gazillion times and piano lessons that's easy but to teach someone the creative side i think is a little bit more challenging so i i leaned on the stuff he'd put out a lot and he's just got these great resources on like how do you switch from one idea to the next and then like basic orchestration treatise too like if you just want a good start yeah that's cool. You had him on the podcast. Uh, yeah, I was I was really excited about that. Um, and it, yeah, it was really cool. And everything you're saying too is exactly what what sucked me in right away when I read when I first started reading. Um, I had this this PDF a friend sent me called a uh, a practical guide to music composition. Yes, that's yeah, it. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's the one where he he like talked all about like you know um, flow versus break or you know, whatever, or like momentum balance and all this stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and I had never really heard anyone talk about it like that. And, and like what you're saying, teach, that is a really effective way to teach composition. I think so too. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, and like Alan and I had mentioned in, and it's in his book and everything is that it's completely style neutral. Yeah, it really is. Isn't it? Because yep. every every piece of music, it's like you want to convey some sort of emotional experience, and there's certain mood and character you're setting, and you know it doesn't matter if it's pointillism or neo romanticism or uh, like microtonal textures or whatever. Like a climax is a climax. How you you know it's it's a moment where everything just comes to a big uh, you know. Um, I, I can't even explain it right now, but, uh, you know, it's where everything comes to a big moment. Everything just kind of, you know, it's loud and whatever. Um, that's a climax, regardless of the style. Yes. Yeah. He's really humble, too. I've interact. Well, I've seen him on some of the Facebook groups that we're both members of, and he's just comes across as really genuine and wants to just help people. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is really great, too, is is he... He has such a, uh, what's the word, like concise and comprehensible way of defining things about composition. Yeah. Like what does balance mean? What is momentum? And and like he'll have like a, a little one sentence thing and you're like, oh, that's exactly what it is. And like, and then, <laughs> and then you feel like you can compose the greatest piece ever after that. <laughs> well, that's a mark of a good teacher, I would think, if he's empowering you in such a way where you're like, I can do this too yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah uh that's that's cool to hear though that you you found his work and it resonated with you as well and and you applied oh, yeah. it to teaching oh yeah 100 mm percent. -hmm. my first academic job i was i kind of felt like a fish out of water like i sure i was a composer i can teach music theory i can do whatever but how do i guide someone who wants to compose into composing and he just gave me a way to think about it, gave me some language 
you know, balance, unity versus variety. I think younger composers struggle with transitions. Transitions are hard. And and he gives us some simple ways to think about it. (laughs) You know? Yeah, it's 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 really cool. I I I really think that he's someone that more people should be aware of. I don't I don't think that he's as like he has a good he has a pretty good following on YouTube. Um but I feel like his material should be taught in like composition classes and stuff if it isn't. Yeah, I don't know. He he's a professor somewhere, right? I can't remember where. Yeah, he's retired now, but he was at the University of Montreal. Nice. Yeah. Um yeah, such a cool guy, really great you know, just way of, of making things comprehensible. Yes, absolutely. Well, now people will go and get his stuff because they've listened to your interview with him. <laughs> I hope so, man. That'd be great. <laughs> that dude deserves it. <laughs> I agree. hundred percent. Garrett, I have to ask you about the woodworking, man, because when you said that, I got really excited. <laughs> yeah. What, what has that been like? Oh, well, Besides what I've already described, yeah, satisfying. Um, I'm. All, I also love. I, I'm making gifts for people, so it's been really rewarding for me to craft something. You know, like I, I will make compositions as gifts for people, and they appreciate it, but they can't hold it. They can't do anything with it. Like they'll play it, or they'll listen to the recording, or I could play it for them. But now I can give something to them and they can use it or whatever. Uh, so I, I mentioned cribbage boards. I, I, do you play cribbage? I don't even know what that is. Oh my gosh. It's like one of the best games ever. It's an old, old game. In fact, I'm a huge James Bond fan, believe it or not. I just love the guy. Love all the stories. And in the original stories by Ian Fleming, he's not playing poker in the casinos. He's playing cribbage. And he's betting. It's a huge. It was a huge casino game, but the cribbage boards, there you 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 count points by moving pegs along these tracks. And so a cribbage board is often a beautiful piece of wood with so many holes that you have to have 121 points to win. So there's multiple ways to make it look, and whether you have two, three, or four or more tracks. But I'm taking these beautiful figured woods, and I will inlay metal or mother of pearl or something into it like an initial um and i'll laminate pieces together uh, and and then i'll give those away as gifts or i'm i've made these really cool hold on a second oh please <laughs> so i made i made these which are wine bottle holders like a table centerpiece and they self-balance so it sits on the table like this and then you put the neck of the wine bottle in and it just balances and it's so like I made this out of oak and then I stained it and I whatever. And then I'll I cut and then I finished it in polyurethane. And then you I just give it away as gifts it's like here, like for my neighbors so, or whatever. And now I'm making instruments and what? Yes, it's just really satisfying. That's really cool. I never even heard of a, a, a wine bottle uh, holder like that. Oh, yeah. Should I go get a wine bottle? You want to see it in action? I would love to see it in action, please. Okay, I'm good. All right. I have to step away. All right. I'll be right. <laughs> yeah, I'll be right here. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if I can do this without it being on a table. Yeah. But it kind of just sits in here like this. 
Oh my god. Balances. I don't know. Can I do it on my hand? I can't I don't know if I can keep my hand level enough. But it, it just self-balances and it looks really cool sitting on a table. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Things like this. How how do you like is there uh, to find the center weight of gravity so it balances, is there like anything more you have to do or like to measure it or no, you well, you just feel it. Like pull it in or out because uh, some wine bottlenecks are a little bit longer. Mm. Right. So there's not like a, a method. <laughs> you just feel it out. But I, I saw these, we went on a vacation uh, up in the mountains of Colorado last year. And we walked into like a craft store. Well, more like a artisanal store where a whole bunch of artisans were displaying their stuff. So there's pottery and visual art and a woodworker had these. And I thought, oh, well, I could make that. So I just came home and made it. <laughs> I love that. And he was selling them for like 25 bucks a pop. Oh, wow. Um, and this probably, I mean, it's like $7 worth of oak and polyurethane and stain. So it's like not, not expensive. Mm-hmm. But it's a nice, like, custom gift. So, I mean, to get to your question, like, the woodworking, I, I just find it deeply satisfying. Yeah. And learn, learning all these new things, like how to inlay Mother of Pearl into wood it has just been a real trip. And cold casting powdered metals, learning how to do that. What is that, what is that exactly? So it's a technique where you can, got, you can buy... Um, They'll, they'll take a metal and they'll grind it up into a fine powder. So you can buy like aluminum powder or brass or copper or iron, depending on what color you want. And a lot of these will be used in chemistry experiments. So you, often the suppliers are chemistry supply stores. Mm. Or, you know, this is what they use in fireworks because each element burns at a different color and temperature. But what you do is you carve... Uh, whatever pattern you want and you fill it with the powder and then you can either use epoxy or um, super glue and then you fill it and that that's called cold casting and then you sand it down what does that does what does that do exactly like i'm so it, it creates an inlay inside the wood that's actually metal without having to as opposed to a hot cast which is where you have to make it molten right and so then you don't you're not burning the wood um the other way to inlay it is to like have uh have the metal already like as a sheet and then cut it out and then you'd have to inlay that so cold casting is an easy the easiest way to get it into a particular shape without burning anything <laughs> is this this is like inlays on a fingerboard of a guitar neck you could do that so like this i could i could fill this this is a this is a trough a circle i cut mm. and i could fill it with a powder and then cold cast it would you like to see an example yeah i don't want to i don't want to you know have you you could do if you want to sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm putting you to work today you didn't know what this podcast was gonna be like Garrett. i had no idea <laughs> So this is a this is a Music Man style bass I made last Thanksgiving. Wow! But rather than the Music Man style 
pickup or the the cover like the the pick guard is usually this teardrop shaped thing so i wanted to do this stained mahogany look and i just cut where the pick guard would be and i filled that with copper mm -hmm. and then i wanted this irish trinity circle um, so that's aluminum and then iron so what i did is i used hand carving chiseling tools to cut the pattern and then i filled it with metal and then I did it on the headstock too. That's my family symbol because the, the ancient symbol for hope is an anchor. And I've taken that and I've tattooed it on my back and I make wine. It's on my wine bottle labels. And, <laughs> and then I, rather than having a metal jack plate, I took another piece of mahogany um, and stained it to match. So... That looks amazing, Garrett. That is seriously so cool. And then I inlaid this. It's mother of pearl with opal at the 12th fret. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Just geeking out on this stuff. How, how long it. How long have you... Um, like, has this something that's always been an interest for you? And then when the pandemic, pandemic came, you were like, oh, I'm going to do it now. Or was it just like... You just sort of pointed and like, oh, I'll, I'll try, I'll try that thing for the pandemic. Yeah, it was more of that. Wow. Well, it it was. I don't know. <laughs> I never did it before. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have any tools. Nothing. Um, my my family has had like my grandfather was a wood carver and stuff, and I have some of his things around the house, but I never did it. <laughs> And I was getting more and more interested in making my own guitars. So then I, I started with these kits and I was like, well, what's the next step? Well, now I've got to do it myself. And then I, so then you, you buy, you buy tools and then pretty soon you're into it for a couple grand. You're like, well, now I've got a table saw and a drill press and a scroll saw. And, <laughs> but it's so rewarding. It's. This is so cool. Like, so, uh, for anyone who's watching or listens to this, uh, when Garrett and I were emailing about what to talk about and stuff, one of his last emails to me was like, he's like, Hey man, I'm looking forward to just talking about whatever comes up, you know, like <laughs> just, you know, and, and this is, uh, this is one of those moments. What I love about this podcast is like these sort of things where I had no idea you even did any woodworking and it's so cool to see. Yeah. I wish I had a crib board to show you. They're, they're just beautiful, but, um, I gave them all away. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm making more as Christmas gifts right now. Hope no one's listening who might get one. But <laughs> if, if you're one of those people listening, um, you're you're getting a, a tie <laughs> you're or, right. or, or a nice hat. <laughs> <laughs> you are not getting a crib board. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, you, next time you come to the lead lodge or lead center in Nebraska city for your retreat, mm. I'll drive the hour down to you and I'll teach you how to play cribbage. Are you, are you in, um, Kearney? No, I'm in Lincoln. Lincoln. Okay. Yeah. Um, I see when I was in, uh, uh, Nebraska city for the residency, I wanted to go around and explore and like go to Omaha go, you know, check out other places and stuff. That's the farthest West I've ever been. And for real, for real. Yeah. 
So you made it to the Missouri River. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm slowly taking Lois and Clark's path. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and it was so crazy because I, I was there for, um, I think, I think three weeks. That's a and long time. It's a long time. It, I never, ever thought about you're in Nebraska. Um, Anthony D'Onofrio is in, in or uh, Anthony D'Onofrio, is that his last name? He's in Kearney, right? Yeah, I think he's in Kearney. Yep. Uh, is also, yeah, he's in Kearney. Um, and there's someone else who I, and it just never, I, I never thought about it. And then <laughs> like the day after I got back, I put a post and you commented on it. And I was like, oh my God, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> you were only like an hour and a half away from Kansas City. Like, yes, there's a lot. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, have you uh, have you been to the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts at all? Uh, in Nebraska City, mm -hmm. um, I've been near it. So, the, you know, like the Arbor Foundation is based there and stuff. So we've gone there a lot to do things there. And every this time of year, they often have a big festival for the apple harvest because they have huge apple orchards, mm -hmm. which is all it's all messed up because of COVID, right? These things, but. So I've been down in Nebraska City a lot, and uh, they've got a great little golf course. I love hitting up with friends. Mm. But while you were there, did you visit like the uh, Underground Railroad House and all the Lewis and Clark stuff? I did. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it, that wild? It was so fascinating. Um, yeah. The, when I when, when I went to check out the Lewis and Clark Museum and all that, and I walked around the trails and whatnot, and went down to the uh, the, the Missouri the River. Um, they had these like <clears throat> these like giant re um, uh, modeled whatever you want to call it like tents from like Native Americans and stuff like that, and it was so cool because one of them was like this giant like uh, I don't know you what what's called exactly, but it housed like maybe twenty or thirty people. Okay. And around the perimeter of it, it had like little stations. Like there was like a little sort of cage for any sort of uh, livestock. And then there was another table to the side of that for like drying hide and like making leather or whatever it was. Um, and then there was another section for like, uh, I don't know, like their vegetables and all this other stuff. And it, it was just so fascinating to see how like it, it this single tent functioned as like a, uh, a condensed community, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. Did they have that there when you, when you, when you were there? I think so. I actually haven't done the Lewis and Clark Museum in Nebraska City. Okay. But they came right through Nebraska. So there's all sorts of cool things. And the Oregon Trail is here too. Mm -hmm. And if you ever get to the other side of the state, like if you get to Scott's Bluff, it's actually r really cool because you're way out in the middle of nowhere, but there's these giant like well the the bluffs right they just kind of come out of the ground and the way the geography works there was really only one path the wagons could take or else they'd have to go like days out of their way and there are still ruts in the rock from the wagon wheels and so you can like walk the trail and they have wagons there to like so you can kind of get a sense of what it was like and there's a there's a hill not too far away from Kearney. Well, it's it's closer to Lake McConaughey. I think it's called Winch Hill or something like that. But it was so steep, it was on the trail that they actually had to winch the wagons down. And um, you, you just think like trying to get get to Oregon from St. Louis, 
going 12 miles a day or something like that. And it's it'd be so hard. <laughs> absolutely. I can't even, I have enough trouble driving from Chicago to visit my mom in New Jersey, you know, like <laughs> right. that, that drive in my car that can go like a hundred plus miles an hour. Right. Like, yep. <laughs> and I get to sit there safe from the elements, you know? Yeah. I just, I really, I love that stuff. I, I love history and mm -hmm. I, I was a history major in undergrad too. And living in places where that happens, I mean, on the East coast, it's everywhere. Right. And the further West you get it, the younger and younger mm -hmm. in, in terms of American history or Western history, but it's, I, I can't get enough of it. So every time we go some place as a family, we'll stop and try to like absorb as much of it as we can. And yeah, I, being in the Midwest is fascinating. A lot of people like it, they call them flyover states for a reason, but they, they could be wildly gorgeous. And uh, part of what makes them beautiful is the wide openness of it. And I know people from the East Coast who that terrifies them, right? It, it, it manifests agoraphobia for them. It's, it's too open. It's too expansive. It's, it's really funny that you're saying this because like it was almost like that for me because <laughs> where, where I lived in New Jersey, like it's off the Appalachian Trail. So like it's pretty mountainous and hilly uh, trees. trees everywhere. The, the town I lived in, there's like really no flat roads. It's like curving hilly like, all over the place. Right. When I moved to Bowling Green, Ohio, it was like, I was like, where's the geography? <laughs> <There's> like, <laughs> yeah it's just flat straight long uh fields or roads amongst fields and yeah. um like the sun is always present you know there's no trees really to kind of go for shade or anything like that and like and at first it was like it was like what you're saying i was like oh my god this is this is not cool <laughs> you know but then <laughs> but at the same time i actually i liked the fact that there was so much sky yeah like it was so interesting to be to be able to stand in one spot and then to be able to look really far that way and then 360 degrees around yeah. and and not have like a tree or like you know whatever sort of in the way or if you're in a city like a skyscraper there are places where you can see the next town 12 miles away that's right? so amazing and uh, i think montana's um, catchphrase is the big sky country and mm. you, there's places where the sky feels so big yeah. and, and especially at night like did you when you were in Bowling Green or when you came out here and you go out into the middle of the field and it's just the Milky Way and you can't see anything else just stars from horizon to horizon it's <laughs> overwhelming it, it is it is it's, it's really powerful to have like you you feel like the uh the what's the word like enormous magnitude of of the world and like the universe in a way yeah it's something else yeah. that's that's something uh have you heard or read the book empire of the summer moon no it's you you might appreciate this a lot actually cuz it's about um it's about the comanche indians in um in the great plains <laughs> And the book, I actually just read it very recently. The book is a historical document, but it's written like the dramatization of a novel. And the Comanche Indians uh, 
were a, a, a Great Plains tribe. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were one of the handful of tribes that mastered riding a horse because no other Indians, especially on the East, really rode horses. Right. right. So like that that whole um, thing that we see in movies, like cowboys versus Indians, that whatever, like that was more of like a Great Plains Indian thing. It was, yeah. And so um, the thing about the Comanches that is really, really amazing is that they were a warrior tribe. Like they were literally the uh, Native American version of Spartans. Mm. And they commanded the Texas and Oklahoma area for... Um, like 150 years. Wow. Because when the settlers came over, the French tried moving farther west, but the Comanche stopped them because they were so powerful because they mastered riding a horse and most other people would fight on foot. Right. And they were experts, marksmen with their arrows, with bows and arrows. And they had these like 14 foot long lances that like, you know, they're riding a horse and they got this lance and they, you know, you, you, you have no chance, even if you have muskets and stuff. And so for 150 years, they stopped the French, they stopped Mexicans, they stopped. Um, and then when the settlers started coming in as the, as the United States started to grow, um, no one can get past it because like what you were saying a moment ago, when people from the East Coast come into the, in the um, uh, middle America and stuff like that, like it's it's a lot for them. It's overwhelming. So when the settlers came to the Great Plains, they didn't know how to um, survive because there was no timber. Mm-hmm. There, like f- like rivers was harder to find. Yep. And the Comanche Indians, they they that was their lifestyle was living on the plains. So they they lived off of the buffalo, and. Uh, it's it's a fascinating fascinating read um, i'll have to read it that sounds really good yeah it's it's a cool it's a cool it's a cool book but the one of the interesting things about it too is the um the last great comanche chief his name was Quana parker he was half uh he was half white because hmm. his his mother was captured in a raid and she ended up marrying one of the chiefs and then she birthed a few, a few children, but Quanah Parker was one of them. He he was the last great chief of the Comanche before they they were forced onto a reservation, uh, and he died in 1911. Wow! So going back to what you were saying before about how young the part of the country where you live in Nebraska and stuff is, like, you know, he he the last great chief of the Comanche was that you know he died only 110 years ago. Yeah, that's not long. It's not that long. Yeah. I mean, that was the premiere of uh, what Pierre Lenaire, or was that? Uh, yeah, it was 1912. But yeah, 1912? It was essentially the same. Yeah, like it, it's that's kind of bonkers, isn't it? And a lot of people don't realize how much space there is. Like I just read a statistic, I think yesterday, that in America we only occupy like five percent of all the land. Mm. And when you come to places like this, there are great swaths where there's nothing. (laughs) That's why you can drive for hours and hours and, 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 you know, not hit much. (laughs) That's so interesting. Only 5% of the land of the United States of America. I believe so. I hope that statistics accurate. Mm -hmm. Someone's going to fact check me on it. 
that's that's fine. I, I say a lot of stuff on this podcast that's definitely <laughs> wrong. So, so well, I I grew up in Denver, and my wife grew up in Central Alberta. She's Canadian, and it was a sixteen hour drive for me to go see her when we were dating, and so I'd take I twenty five north all from from Denver through Wyoming to Billings, Montana, and then cut across Montana to Alberta and then up through Alberta. And it's all just prairie. And so, you know, I would, it's like eight hours from here to Billings and I go through like three big towns. So there, there's stretches of the highway where they'll say, this is your last chance to fill up for like a 60 some miles. Like, And some people who never come this far west, they don't realize just how big the country is. Mm-hmm. There is so, and I'm not saying we need to fill it. I'm trust me, it's just that it's big. There's a lot of land, and then you you read stories like that about the Comanche who can command a territory that's bigger than most countries in the world, right? On horseback. <laughs> God, how do, you, how do you do that? Like, it's bigger than most of Europe. Texas is. Yeah, that's oh, that's yeah. true. <laughs> and you can command the whole territory without motorized vehicles. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's amazing. I mean, that that's so interesting to hear you say about the whole sixty miles until your next stop. I mean, I wonder, uh, you know, people who have Teslas won't be in a good position then, probably. In an area like that. Yeah, well, I think Tesla's trying to put those stations they have on all the interstates, but mm. as long as you're filled up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, there was this interesting part in the in that book, too, that was um, was sort of like, you know, cliffhanger in a way. But um, he was the author was talking about, uh, I don't know what group of Mexicans or whoever, but they were this group in Mexico was steadily pushing north into North America and like obliterating all these tribes along the way, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and they finally get to like just about Texas, and the Apache Indians are there, and they're another horseback tribe that's also like warrior esque. And the Mexican group was fighting with the Apaches for a while, and and you know they were sort of at a standstill, and then one day the Apaches weren't attacking anymore they weren't even they couldn't you know they weren't seeing them or anything the mex and the mexicans were like what happened like we had this intense battle these guys are gone and i don't know how much time went by between the last time they battled them and then saw the apaches again but the apaches came uh to the mexicans for a truce and they're like hey man uh we want a truce we actually want to team with you because we're getting fucked up by the comanches huh and so that's what happened to the Apache was that the Comanche, like that was their territory. And they're like, you got to get out of here and just started, started taking them out. Wow. <laughs> it, it was, it was a really intense moment to read about. I mean, obviously the author explains it and, and writes about it in a way that is way more exciting than I could, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the history of a, well, history, all no matter what, I think is always fascinating and interesting. Mm-hmm. Have you spoken with Jared Tate yet for your podcast? I, I haven't. I don't even know who Jared Tate is. Okay. Well, he's an incredible composer, but he's uh, part of the Chickasaw tribe in Oklahoma. Uh-huh. And and so a lot of the music he writes pulls on on that native music, and it's beautiful. 
He's uh-huh. doing really cool stuff. You should talk. This would be a fascinating conversation to have with Jared. Oh, that's interesting. I'd love to talk to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll connect you guys. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah, he's he's a really good guy and a great composer. Was he was he in uh, was he in the Ultimate Music Business Summit? He was. Yep. He I... gave a presentation about um, identity and like finding a place to stand in and to so that you can kind of make music that is your own. Mm-hmm. I remember that. So I do know who he is. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And he's been on the portfolio composer as well. Okay. Uh, He and I call each other just out of the blue every couple of weeks, just check in and talk. And that's cool. Yeah. That's, that's such a great relationship to have right there. I mean, you know, like a, a buddy who you, you periodically kind of touch base with and. Well, you know, that's one of the best things that's happened to me since starting the podcast like i started the podcast because i wanted to pivot my skill set right from from teaching towards helping other people in this new way and it's given me incredible relationships with people that i genuinely can call friends like like jared and others and i now know people in just about every major city i feel like i could go almost anywhere and I, there'd be someone I could go and get a meal with, mm. you know, it's been wonderful. And I hope you're having that experience too. Uh, just building really true, meaningful relationships with people. It's been wonderful. That's so cool to hear. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely getting that as well. I mean, because that's, that's the thing about the, this platform of doing a podcast is like you sit there with someone and you have this conversation with them um, and it can, you know, like yours, for example, like yours gets really in depth too. Like you ask really pointed and specific questions that like pierce through the heart of whatever issue it is you're trying to talk about, you know? And that's one of the things I, I like, I loved about it from the beginning. And, and I've learned so much from your podcast about, Thanks. Like what you talk, like the business side of composing and, you know, you're, you're, uh, being a, you as a small business owner. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then also like you also, you make it a point to, yeah, well, you still have to compose though. Like make sure you're being creative. You're putting time aside to allow your muse to like, to, to, you know, to work with your muse or whatever. And, um, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, the platform definitely, that's what's so great about it. It allows that like uh, organic, like relationship building. Yeah, at least it has for me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's cool to hear. And I'm, I'm not surprised either though, because like with your, um, you know, I mean, like I was saying, like you, you ask such pointed questions and stuff, but it's always so specific to who the guest is. Hmm. Which episodes really stood out to you? Alex Shapiro, undoubtedly. Oh, she is so amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I actually just released the, I, I had her on the podcast. I just released the episode today. Oh, nice. Got yeah. Um, but her, her episode, because that was a two-parter, right? Yes. Um, that, I remember that episode. I listened to it several times. Can I tell you the story behind that one? Please, I don't, I don't, I don't know the story. So um, she lives on uh, San Juan Island in the San Juan Archipelago, 
which is in the Salish Sea, which sits in between Seattle and Vancouver Island, just north of Puget Sound. Okay. And I have a really dear friend who was also a doctoral student at University of Nebraska while I was. She was getting hers in um, creative writing. And she's a poet. And I, was, I had been setting her works to um, music. And she had a visual artist friend who lives in Hamilton, Ontario. And we put together this incredible multidisciplinary presentation that was in an art gallery outside of Philly. And so she and her husband run a bed and breakfast on Orcas Island, which is just nearby where Alex was. And so we went and had a residency there. And the three of us just spent a week making art. It was glorious. But I knew I was going to be real close to Alex Shapiro. And here's this woman who is a killer composer. She's on the board of ASCAP. She writes about music business, all the things I'm thinking about. And so I just send her this email out of the blue. I'm like, I know you don't know me, but I'm coming to your island. Can I, can I interview you? Would you meet me? And she said, sure. Why don't I just pick you up and bring you back to my house? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, you don't know me, but she does. So we, I, I take the ferry to her island and we had actually just done this incredible hike on the island, just like see nature and, and the, the ocean and stuff. And, she comes, we go back to her house and her, like, it, look, the whole house is a composing studio. It's amazing. And we sat on her couch drinking great scotch for like three hours. And I had bought these lavalier mics so that we could talk because I have like a portable Zoom recorder, right? Like a device. And I thought, I want to get really good audio. And it turns out one of the cables was bad. So all that crackling was a bad cable. And I didn't know it, but like the, the conversation blew my mind. And those are my most downloaded episodes of all time. Mm. Cause they're so good. I'm not surprised to hear that. That is like, yeah, it is so good. <laughs> so the, the, she is it, the, one of the most generous people too, to give me all that time and people, she, she does that freely and to help other people build their careers and become composers. And, um, yeah. And so if you ever get to the San Juan islands, send Alex and I'm not promising that she would do anything, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe you could buy her a copy. I don't know. <laughs> that, that would, yeah, I would happily do that. Um, that's, that's such a cool story. Yeah. There, there's so much about that where like you cold emailed her not knowing what that would be like, what the response would be. And then the generosity on her end of like, oh, let me pick you up. Let's cruise around the island. Let's spend these next three hours drinking scotch and just talking on your podcast. Yeah, and now I've got her number on my phone and I text her like, not often, but I do. <laughs> and and she goes to the Midwest Clinic every December like I do to, to because it's a band conference and that's our major compositional output. So like I get to hang out with her a little bit there and... She's wonderful. I'm so <laughs> you got the chance to speak with her. It's so cool to hear you say this. Um, yeah, me too. And everything you're saying is exactly what it was. Like we talked for two and a half hours and it, it never got, it never felt dull or um, there was any lulls in the conversation and everything she said, I, I think even at one point I told her, I was like, Alex, you're dropping bombs. Like everything you're saying, is like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
I told her at the end of our three hours, I was like, I think I'm in love with you. <laughs> it's not hard to be. It's not hard to be. No, no, no. It's she, not hard at all. One of the things, too, that I, I loved is she's so, like, she's so uh, clever, but, like, that's not the word I want to say. Oh, I can't, I can't put it into words exactly, but, like, she has a way of talking about things that just puts it all into a, a digestible, like, actionable format. I released some of the clips today, not clips, but, like, a, a little teaser for the episode. I, I always put teasers on Instagram. Oh, and, nice. I, and I try to find... Um, things that the the guest says that are are useful, funny, insightful, or like just a great story or something. And there was so much that she said that it, it was so it's so hard to find like uh, to to break it down to clips that are short enough and to choose which one should be used or should should be omitted. You know? Oh yeah, especially with her because she, like you said. She's just dropping bombs. And it's like, yeah. which, which clip are you going to put out there? Exactly. Exactly. She's succinct mm. and she is eloquent. She speaks really well. Mm -hmm. um, and she does it with humor and grace. It never comes across as kind of the thou must do this to be a composer. Instead, it you, you listen to her and you feel like doors are opening and opportunities are coming your way. And uh, she does it with a smile on her face, you know? And... That, that right there should be Alex's, like, slogan. Like, do it with a smile on your face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And but she writes cool music, too. She, she does. She does. I love it. I was telling her about the, um, the piece, I think it was called uh, Rock Music. Oh, when, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think she had talked about that on your podcast. I don't remember. But... I think so. Because I think that was a composers and schools and concert piece that she did and i was at the same time was writing my first piece for them and mm -hmm. yeah very innovative too she's also one of the first composers to start integrating electronics into band music really yeah and now now a lot of people are doing it but she was one of the on the first wave of it that's so cool yeah yeah she is an innovator <laughs> absolutely she is yep are you are you going to the um mid uh, Midwest Clinic this year? I'm planning on it. Is that what it's I called, Midwest Clinic? Midwest Clinic. Mm -hmm. I have my plane ticket purchased and my hotel reserved, but we'll we'll see what happens, right? Yeah, yeah, that's very kind true. In their breath for conferences right now to see what's going to happen. Yeah, it's a weird time, or it's been a weird time, but it's now it's like getting weird. Or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they they canceled last year, right? Um, and then they put it on. People are, people are planning on it, but I, we, we no one knows, right? Cause the city of Chicago, uh, could shut it down or maybe the, the risk level could just get too high to make it worth anyone's time. Um, or some people might just choose not to come because they don't feel safe yet. Right. So normal attendance is between 17 and 19,000 people are, is everyone going to come who normally comes? No one knows yet what's going to happen. That's very true. Yeah, especially something like that, um, being indoors. And yeah, like we don't know where this is going. Yes. How people are feeling. And I, I don't want to get political. I really don't. Mm -hmm. But 
there, there's still questions about are they going to have vaccine mandates? Like, are they going to require people to right. do that or not? That could come from the organization. It could come from the convention center. It could come from the city. Like, there's still so much up in the air too that's going to affect attendance and how well it goes. And yeah, that's very true. Um, well, I, I, I want to throw this out there. If you do go, I would love to get a drink with you and Alex. Well, I can't promise anything for Alex. We can ask. Yeah, yeah. You're on. We'll be there. <laughs> that would be cool because, um, yeah, I, 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 I didn't know about the clinic. Um, and Or if I did, I just didn't realize it. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I looked into it very briefly, and I don't know if I'll be able to go or not, but I live in Chicago, so. <laughs> well, I think – it's worth it's worth going just to see. I mean, obviously, it's most valuable if that's your market. Educational music, and specifically bands and orchestras. Um, if that's not who you write for, you're not going to get a whole lot of benefit out of it. But it's still good to look at it and see how are how are other composers presenting themselves to the marketplace. What are what does it look like to network in these kinds of situations? And then the performing groups. In a normal year, it's mind-blowing. There are these middle school groups, so like these seventh graders who come, and they sound like college bands. Like, how is this possible? <laughs> but it happens every year, and then there's the high school groups and the college bands, and they just all sound incredible. Oh. Whoever's teaching these kids or whoever their director is, is they're doing something very right. Well, that... You okay? This might be a kind of a controversial statement, but that's up for debate. Mm -hmm. So you know, uh, some states like Texas have really invested in their band programs. Like band is a huge thing, um, and so a lot of these high performing groups come from states like Texas, where they're they've been pushing instrumental education. Now I think there's value in that, right? But where is the line where you push? too hard mm. you know so okay we can get these seventh and eighth graders to play grade four grade five stuff at a high level but do do they need to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right um it, it, what are we sacrificing in order to get them there and what's the burnout rate how many of those kids are staying with music for the rest of their lives because they just love it right or by the time they graduate high school they're just like i'm so sick of it i'm done I don't know the answer, but there, there's always some sort of trade-off here. And um, another composer friend, uh, Mark Connor, who has a podcast, um, Everything Band, and he's talking to band directors. One question he asks a lot is, what is your feeling on competitions? And this is something that happens in the band world. Did you grow up as you, – you play saxophone, right? I, I played saxophone very briefly in middle school. Okay, but well, it's funny that you remember that. Good memory. <laughs> well, I, I try. I'm glad I got that right. <laughs> so there's festivals and competitions where bands go to get judged, and then especially in marching band, like it's it's a thing. Um, but what's the value, and what are we judging on? Are we helping kids grow musically, or are we just playing towards the contest? And so these are discussions that are actually kind of hot button issues, and there are. Um, camps of people who firmly believe like 
this is the way it should be. And then the opposite. And, and, and in Nebraska, I talked to band directors and the marching band world here is completely divided. Like there's the, every school needs to have a band and everyone's going to compete. But in our state, you know, we have two or three urban areas that can support high schools that have marching bands. And then so many rural schools that you're lucky if you can get 12 kids together for your whole band. How are they going to compete? And yet the the system kind of forces them to. So all these schools are, are going into the same competitions. Yeah, I mean, and- they, 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 they level it, right? So like uh, your, your <laughs> big high schools will only compete against big high schools and stuff. But right. if, you, if you are from the Sand Hills and your school district pulls kids from like 60 square miles – together as opposed to a school district which is like four square miles all by itself Mm -hmm. and you've got two thousand kids in your high school and then you have a 200 person marching band and then you bring your 12 kids into the competition it's a hard thing right because there's there's value in competition there's value in pushing yourself to play to a high level but is there something negative happening too and those are the questions that like Mark Connor is always asking and trying to explore. And and then you, you see these kids at the Midwest clinic that are just blow your socks off. They're so good. But I also like, I want these kids to just love music because music's amazing and uh, lifelong music lovers. Maybe they all become composers. I don't know, but we, isn't the goal to have everyone fall in love with music for its own sake and be able to play music for the rest of their lives and enjoy it. And and I have friends who their parents pushed them really hard or they had a bad band director or something. And they, now they, they haven't played for years or they hate it. Do you have friends like that? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. So like, Oh, that's where music education somehow failed them. Hmm instead of instilling this lifelong passion or the skill where they could always pick up an instrument and participate, make music with your friends and your church, or just, you know, in your backyard. That's something that, sorry, no, please continue. No, I was finishing my thought. I was just making, I was emphasizing my point. That's all. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, though, that's something right there that I know you talk about quite a bit on your podcast is like, how much you can take from your experience as a musician and apply it to other areas of your life. And, and so like, I can only imagine like to the point, to your point about these kids sort of being pushed and overworked in certain ways and whatnot, that, that, that opportunity is then taken away from them. The the ability to be able to take the skill set of discipline and um, receiving critique openly, you know, and, and, um, not focusing so much on the goal, more on the process, like, you know, uh, missing out on that. Obviously, you don't only have to res- like learn about that through music, but it is something that you do learn it from. Yeah, absolutely. Music's a weird thing because you either play it correctly or you don't, <laughs> right? You get the notes right and the rhythms right and you're in tune or you're not. But at the same time, if we make that the ultimate objective for these young students who are developing instead of like um, learning how to listen across the band and can you hear all the contrapuntal points or, or whatever, 
like immersing yourself into the whole world instead of fixating on these details. And a lot of the competitions, like you look at the forums, it's like articulations. Yeah, they got them all right. Okay, were they in tune? Yeah, they got it right. Instead of was it an enjoyable musical experience? So I, there's a balancing act. I don't have answers. My whole point was, even though these kids are performing at a high level, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we should be doing with young players totally yeah point point well made um it's it's something where i noticed and my only experience is with one-on-one lessons teaching guitar and whatnot um but like i've noticed with some of the kids who i teach that are like younger than middle school and stuff it's like they have busier schedules than i do and oh yeah and i'm like that's i don't know i don't know i'm not a parent i'm not gonna tell people how to parent <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea, though. So, like, I guess I am telling people how to parent. <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It, it's really, really hard. Mm. You want your kid to be involved and to be in extracurriculars, but pretty soon every single night of the week is taken up with something, and then they have homework on top of that. And Yeah. There's a, there's a book I read called uh, The Coddling of the American Mind by, oh, yeah. by Jonathan Haidt. Yep. Yeah, and he talks about in that book how um, uh, one of the things that a lot of children are missing out on today, or at least the last 20 years, is is uh, free play Yes. separate from adult supervision. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about how, like, we learn a lot and gains uh, social interactive skill sets in those small moments we have as children that when we have to decide like you know if you're like uh playing kickball or something and you're choosing teams and then like a little scuffle breaks out you then learned a very valuable lesson about like how do you respond when someone does something that you don't like or something or vice versa Mm -hmm. you know whereas if there's adult supervision the adult would intervene Yes, and then now that that kid then has to rely on an authority figure to be like, "Oh, this is bad. That can't happen anymore." Yes, I agree completely with Heights' premise on that. I I used to teach at a college um, in Pennsylvania, and uh, there was a a researcher there who wrote a book about child development. I can't remember the name of the book, but it was really influential to my wife and I because our daughter was very young when we read it, when we first met her. Uh, but the value of the free play, but also dangerous play, mm. um, like letting that kid climb the tree mm. or scramble up that boulder, right? <laughs> like there, not only is it a skill set that can lead to other things or, or learning how to negotiate in a social situation like you just described, but you have, every person has to find that line of where they're capable. Mm. And part of, I think the role of a parent is to, to let the, let the child find that you want to want them to be safe, but if they never learn what they're capable of, like, how high can they climb in the tree before it's too high? Or can they walk on that edge that's like six feet off the ground? If they fall, they're probably going to get hurt. But they're not going to die. They're just going to get hurt. But you have to you have to do that. And what Hyde is saying is we've taken away all that danger, right? Playgrounds are now safe with rubber mats. When I was a kid, 
like sometimes they were just on concrete or <laughs> the slides were metal and you get burnt when you go down in the middle of the summer and, uh, whatever like we we shoot each other with bb guns for heaven's sake yeah. <laughs> it wasn't always safe mm-hmm. uh, and i, I there's things there's lots of research to show that that's really really important and and maybe we can apply that to to music too are are we too safe now Mm. are we all trying to just follow the rules i don't know i don't i don't know Mm. but you're right like the you're in your studio you get these kids that have something every night and they're not just outside playing and when they have time off what do they want to do well they don't they want to just like be on social media or playing games it's fine i played video games too (laughs) but like my my daughter right now is in high school and she tells me that they go into the cafeteria and these kids who don't have social groups rather than sitting with friends they just sit and they just have their phone in their face so they're not even learning how to small talk right yeah that's exact that's that's like uh all of the socialization that they're getting is through their device. Yeah. Even in social situations. <laughs> right. And I find myself too, like I, I, I'm in, I'm in some public place. I might be waiting for someone and I, it's just so easy to pull out your phone. So one thing I'm trying right now is like, I'm just going to just stand here. I'm just going to watch people. I'm going <laughs> to, maybe I'll start up a conversation with somebody. And that's actually really hard. And, but I grew up having to do that. That was normal, right? But now it's not normal. But people like my daughter's age, they don't even know how to do that because they've always had something. That's true. Yeah. I, I, I remember, um, you know, going to friends' houses to see if they were home, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it was always fun too, though. Call somebody? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I, I used to skateboard and my friends and I... <clears throat> you know, before we had license, whatever, you'd have to like go to their house and knock on their door and their parents like, Oh, they're actually in town. So then you'd skate into town and try to find them, you know? (laughs) Yes. Right. Don't know where they are. Yeah. And that's a dangerous sport too, right? Oh my God. Yeah. It's uh, it can be quite dangerous. It's funny though, because I played soccer most of my life all the way until senior year in high school. And I got worse injuries in soccer than from skateboarding. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I messed my ankles up a lot, and uh, I, I was in crutches a bunch. I had several walking casts, and like, <laughs> here but, you are. Yeah, I'm still moving. I mean, I now from skating, I have like five scars in this exact spot from falling. You know, wow. <laughs> it was just like scar on top of scar. That's so cool. <laughs> I, I remember once we built a little ramp, and I always wanted to be a skateboarder, but I was terrible but I took it with my bike and for some reason I locked my front brake right before I landed, ended up flipping over the handlebars and breaking a tooth in half. Oh my God. Like how many kids get that kind of experience, right? <laughs> That's true. <yeah. laughs> or, uh, and these, you know, these kind of injuries. I remember my, my, my friend's brother trying to jump over a rock and said he landed on the rock and he skinned his kneecap down to the bone. Oh my God. And see it. And, and so, like, you, you just, those are the things that, for me, make up a lot of the childhood experiences where you learn, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't actually do that. Mm-hmm. 
And now as an adult, I know exactly where that line is. But you also keep you keep pushing until you can do it. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I'm getting but there we have to let people have the ability and the freedom to 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 have the unsupervised playtime and take dangerous choices. It's it's a tough area, I think. I I'm like I said I'm not a parent or anything like that. Um what was what has that been like for you with your daughter? Have you like I I know that like when I'm a father I'm I'm gonna be like so nervous about her like just walking out the door you know I'm more nervous about other people than I am about her okay um but she's always been precocious and we've encouraged her to be precocious and explore and and make bold decisions um and climb she loves climbing she all mm-hmm. I mean she's always has and the time she broke her arm is because she fell up out of a tree but like that's okay yeah. for me. Well, did that stop her from climbing trees absolutely not but she's climbing trees better now right just like you probably don't fall on your elbow as much anymore after those five falls <laughs> oh man yeah i have learned how to fall better <laughs> if that makes sense yeah. um but that that's it's funny like because in in jonathan height's book he he says a similar scenario about this um have you have you read that book before Uh, i've read excerpts but i've listened to a lot of interviews with him and Mm -hmm. i've read um righteous minds uh no a lot of steven pinker's stuff and okay jordan peterson's stuff where they're all kind of within a camp saying these similar yeah yeah um yeah yeah exactly uh but there was a, a, a park that Jonathan Haidt was talking about in New York City that is uh, it's a park for kids that I don't think has adult supervision. Not only that, there's like hammers, nails, saws for the kids to use. Mm. And the parents have to sign waivers to be like, you know, my kid can roam free and I will not sue sort of thing. Right. And he said when he first went to that park to see, you know, to check it out and whatnot, he saw a kid with a hammer and a nail and he was just banging along. And then the kid smacked his thumb. He was like an eight year old kid. And the kid like, you know, ah, goddamn. Well, he probably didn't say goddamn, but <laughs> he might have, <laughs> but um, he like hurt his finger. And then he like paused for a moment, shook his finger off and then started hammering again, hit his finger again. And then, you know, went through a little bit of pain and then started hammering again. And and Jonathan Haidt, like, ended, ended that chapter beautifully. And he said something like, the kid wasn't learning about what's dangerous. He was learning how to hammer. Yes. So my, my wife is a Montessori teacher. And part of the Montessori education philosophy is to let kids experience real things and to make their own choices. And we put our daughter through that. So even when she was 18 months old, um, all of the things they manipulated in their classroom were real, nothing plastic. So if they dropped their cup, their glass cup, it broke. They had to, they had to participate in the food preparation, like the slicing of the cheese or the fruit for their snack. And so they used sharp knives. And so these little kids, yeah. Are they going to nick a finger? Absolutely. But then do they learn how to use that tool in the proper way, 100%. And a lot of like Montessori schools will create 
similar outdoor environments where it's like a natural play place, not an artificial playground like uh, like most traditional educations. So the school here where my wife teaches and our daughter went is on 10 acres. It's a semi-working farm and they used to have animals. So the kids had to feed the chickens. They had to brush the horses. They have to the, do this work. But then they also, there's forests. So in their free time, what do they do? They're playing in a forest, climbing trees and hide and seek and whatever. And that's where my daughter broke her arm was at school. <laughs> and that's okay. Like, that's fine. Like, there's also wild animals. The, the, uh, the just a couple weeks ago, um, a muskrat bit a kid. Like, how, how do you even, how can you plan for that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I just have to say real quick about muskrats is they're pricks. Oh, they're terrible. <laughs> they're, they're little pricks. I don't like those things. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's really, really, uh, interesting. I, I don't know anything about Montessori schools, honestly. I, I had never really even really heard of them until I started dating my girlfriend because she went to okay. one. Oh, did she? Yeah. Yeah. I think only for like a year or so. Um, but that's, yeah. it. are they all like that? Not exactly. And there's, there's different camps within Montessori, but the overwhelming philosophy is, child-centered learning so the child often chooses what they're going to do and then they're allowed to stay on that focus as long as they need um so for instance if you have a really young kid a lot of that work for like these 18 year olds might be like slicing the cheese and if that kid needs to do that for an hour you let them do that mm -hmm. because what they're doing is they're practicing the skill or pouring like let's put water in this ceramic dish and let's fill these cups and sometimes that kid just wants to practice pouring, right? Mm -hmm. Let them do it until they're done. And they learn, they learn the skill. They also learn what, what's fragile, what's not. And oftentimes when we're working with the kids, we get impatient. Mm. And, and it, this happens in, in a lot of traditional schooling. It's like, okay, well, we're doing this activity until this time. And then you're going to stop what you're doing and we're going to switch activities, whether the kid's ready to or not. And, I think we can equate some of that to music education too. Like I, you and I have both taught a gazillion guitar lessons, right? And sometimes it's really easy to just say, this is the way you're going to hold your instrument. This is the way you strum it. This is the way you're going to learn the song. And then you and I will talk to these composers and they'll say, but I had a teacher who let me make up my own stuff. And that's why I'm doing what I do. And unless you have that teacher who allows them to stay in that moment for a while and explore and maybe cross those lines of like, this is the way it's supposed to be, then we're just creating rule followers, not innovators. Oh, that's really interesting. That's, uh, yeah, the, that's tricky as, as, a, as an instructor. Yeah, right? Especially if this kid says, well, I want to learn how to play this song, or you have a curriculum, you're working through a book. But I don't, I don't, it's, it's really hard. Like, how do you give them that freedom and the structure at the same time? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's my exact thought. Like, hearing you say that and thinking back to the lessons that I teach, um, it's weird. It's really weird to try to kind of, like, yeah, like maintain that structure and then and then allow them to explore and stuff like that and and have the freedom of like, well, let's just see like what you've learned so far. 
try to play something, make something up, right? Or just put them on the spot, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or compose a different ending to this. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. That, that, one thing that um, I realized when I teach is there's like, when when a student starts to do something that's like what I deem as abnormal, I'll, I'll correct them on that. And I'll be like, well, wait a second. That's not always the case, <laughs> you know? And, and, and I, I try, I try to be like, uh, what's the word for like provide options, I guess you can say. And it's so challenging. It's so challenging to be like, like if they say, well, why do I have to hold a pick like that? And it's like, well, this is the pointy end. That's one aspect, you know, <laughs> the other one is like, everyone holds picks like this, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't hold it, you know, any other way. Yes. Um, and, and one of the things that could be troubling is like in teaching, allowing, let's say the, this, the example is allowing the kid to hold the pick abnormally and then continuing to try to teach them in a way that requires them to hold it normally. That's one of the things that I've, I've run into when I try, I try to be uh, much more open yeah. about what the student wants to do. I'd be like, all right, do that. And then, and then like instances will come up where I'm like, all right, this is where holding the pick the proper way would be beneficial. Right. Know? So I think we can differentiate maybe between technique issues mm -hmm. and creativity issues. Mm. So how many times have you had students play with the flats of their fingers and they're muting strings accidentally, or they're not getting a good sound. And you're like, no, you have to play with your fingertips. Right. So like, that's a, that's a technique issue. But when it comes to like, um, learning, like maybe they're learning how to fret in a new way, like, or, or a different position, or maybe like they're coming up with a new ending or introduction to a song. Um, that's where I think we can give them freedom. Mm. But sometimes bad technique can lead to injury or yeah. like, you're going to drop your pick, man. Like, <laughs> 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 you don't want to do that. <laughs> or you're going to just get, it's going to sound bad. So like, you could say, sure, go ahead. But I, I, I would bet that these, these three things might happen. One of these three things. Mm -hmm. But if you want to explore something that's not a technique issue, then maybe we could, you know, give them some more of that freedom. That's a good point. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Allowing them to sort of explore that and like, and, and work on that creative muscle, um, which is like a problem solving sort of thing. Right. Yeah. And uh, you, you've listened to the podcast enough, that you know, I'm a Seth Godin fan. And mm -hmm. when he talks about education, he says one of the problems right now is we've been teaching students how to get the right answer. And mm -hmm. that's the wrong way to do it. We need to, we want, we want people who can ask the right questions. So what does that mean for music, Adam? Right? So we graduate how many thousands of people across the nation every year who can play the same excerpts at the same level, the right way. Mm -hmm. They get the right notes in the right rhythm in tune. Okay. <laughs> so do they do we need to do something new like do we need another recording of this piece when like there's 18 on naxos or something that are all 
equally good unless you're going to do something crazy with it some new interpretation mm -hmm. so music's a weird thing where you either you like yeah that's how it's written but how do we move beyond that in education and letting people explore and 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 grow and what does that mean then if if we're all just the same thing and everything's fungible like if i can't play any different way then i'm instantly replaceable by anyone else that's that's definitely one of the biggest and most challenging questions i think right now in classical music oh yeah and I, this is part of the reason well, a lot of the work I'm doing, the stuff I'm building and the Ultimate Music Business Summit and stuff is because this is where I think schools kind of drop drop the ball. Now, I, I don't want to throw schools completely under the bus because, I mean, the school's job, I think, is to help people play at the highest level possible. Mm. That's That's the promise they're offering, right? But then they also offer a promise of, like, employment on the other end, and that's where I think it falls off the rails because that's not always there anymore. And so we're going to give them these skill sets, but we're not preparing them on what to do with the skill set afterwards. Right. Yeah. And that's literally where your podcast comes in. Exactly. <laughs> yep. And it's like, okay, great. You went to school to, to learn how to write music. Like you, you need to do that. I needed to do that. That's important. But when the school comes along and then says, well, there's academic jobs down the line, but there's not, right? Or there's the orchestral gig you can get it. Yeah, but when we're all competing against 500 other people that are as good or maybe even better, uh, I, I, I think we're doing a disservice to the music community at large. And the people who are doing the most interesting work are the ones who are willing to explore the edges and outside the edges in performance, um, in writing. And I'm not just saying the avant-garde, like, I don't, like, that's fine, whatever. I'm talking more about interpretation kind of issues too. Like there's, you don't just have to play it so strictly all the, t all the time. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm saying it well, Adam. I'm not conveying my idea with clarity. I <laughs> no, no, you you are. You really are, honestly. And and as you can see from talking to me, like I have a, such a hard time <laughs> being clear about what I'm trying to say. Uh, no, I, it, one of the things that comes to mind about this whole idea of presenting an, a different interpretation and stuff um, is when, oh, I can't remember what concerto it was, but when Glenn Gould was performing, I, I think it might have been Brahms or something, some piano concerto that I don't even know. And Leonard Bernstein was conducting. And uh, there was like a very, very large interpretation issue or gap, I should say, between what the soloist Glenn Gould wanted and the conductor Leonard Bernstein wanted. And there's a video, or you can probably see the whole performance too, where at the very beginning of the performance, Leonard Bernstein came out and like gave a disclaimer to the audience. He's like, what you're about to see is unconventional. <laughs> this is not what I would have chosen, but this is what's great about art is because every artist has their own way of thinking and wanting to do things. And that's, that's what makes me interested in doing this, you know? And so it was, it was cool to hear him say that he's like, I don't agree with what Glenn wants, but I like that he wants to do this or like I, I respect and appreciate it and I'm going to follow through with it. 
And um, and so like one of the things I think that was so drastic about it was Glenn Gould played like drastically slower or something like that. Even just that alone, like, you know, what if Beethoven's Fifth Symphony was like, but, duh, 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 you know? Right, it'd be painful. <laughs> it'd be a very different experience. But that that's the bolder choice, right? Mm-hmm. For, for him to take as a conductor to say, okay, this is not what I'm going to do, what I wanted to do, but it's something new, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think composers have done a disservice when we say there's a way to do it. And I think Stockhausen was one of the worst. There are stories of him, you know, sitting with a scowl on his face watching a performer and he's like you played that you know nested tuplet wrong like i'm not a computer man (laughs) and 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 i think as what gets me really excited is just that people are interpreting my music Mm -hmm. and um i don't get hung up too much on like does it sound exactly the way the first performance sounded no not at all like, I want I want directors and performers to put their own life into the music I'm writing. I don't want it to sound the same way every time. And when composers say, like, this is the way it's got to be, I think that's a problem. Oh, performers listening. Go to Garrett. Commission Garrett. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yeah that's that's i'm very with you on that on on the um you know the specificity of what you write versus how the performer performs it like whenever i write a piece i have to work very closely with performers because the music i write it can't be it can't be um interpreted in sibelius you know there's like all kinds of sounds and shit and like you know bow like this so that you only hear the bow rubbing against the string but not the note i can't right. re- i can't recreate that in sibelius so i have to work with the performer a lot and when 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 they're playing the excerpt or like i hear the first rehearsal the piece all the way through and they're like oh i'm not getting this rhythm right i'm like no no, that's fine you're getting the idea across and the mood and character is exactly what i want it to be yes you know and that's the most important thing for me as a composer is like, as long as it, it expresses the, the, like the character, then yeah. And, and the, the, emo- the, uh, the emotion that I want to elicit, mm-hmm. as long as that's there, that's really the most important thing for me. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I just get super excited when people play my music too. Oh my God. Isn't it the coolest feeling? Like, especially when you hear it for the first time. Oh, yes. Sometimes I even <laughs> fail to listen critically, you know, like the performer's so nervous and they want your feedback. And I'm just like this grin on my face saying, you're playing my music. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I Yeah, exactly. You're, you're here. You're experiencing it for the first time. It's like, I mean, you know, it's like you just birthed a child and you saw it like, oh, my God, there it is. That's that's been, you know growing for nine months and now it's here like it's uh it's 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 yeah you're you're so oh man so here's that moment where i'm i'm having a hard time being clear about what i want to (laughs) say um it's it's overwhelming it's overwhelming yeah but it's wonderful that's why we do it right for those ephemeral moments (laughs) 
There it is right there, Garrett. We just yep. came full circle. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> I feel this that is actually probably a good way to round things off with the with the conversation. What do you think? I think it's a good place to be. Yeah? Yeah. Awesome. Uh it's it's amazing. Like I don't think we talked too much about a lot of the stuff we had corresponded about, but uh I'm not upset about that. <laughs> It was yeah no it's fine it was a really interesting conversation I hope that it was um what you wanted <laughs> oh no absolutely well I I I, I do want to let's touch on one thing though before we before we uh, sign off here uh, the ultimate music business summit oh yeah um, I'm glad you remembered that I I did I, I did not want to forget that before before you say anything I want to say um, I got to do the first one this past January right it was in January yeah. And it was such a cool opportunity and experience. I, it's like to give a very brief overview to people before you explain it is that you get all these speakers who do these presentations. Uh, this past year it was online. I'm, I don't know if it'll be similar. Garrett will talk about that, but um, and they talk for I don't know about an hour or so about something specific, and so like. For example, uh, Sarah Whitney was on and she talked about um, overwhelm and imposter syndrome. And seeing her on your thing, I immediately was like, oh my God, I contacted her and asked her to be on the podcast, right? Um, uh, Heidi, Heidi KB Gay uh, talked about podcasting, how to start a podcast. And, and, uh, and then I can't remember his name. The, he plays the double bass, Jason something? Jason Heath. Jason Heath talked about starting a YouTube channel and like, you know, um, understanding your analytics and all that stuff on YouTube, all things that are so practical for the current modern living musician. Uh, that's my, that's my testimonial right there for ultimate music business summit. Uh, can we use that? <laughs> by all means go right ahead. <laughs> Sweet. I will. Yeah. So it's going to happen online again and it's actually going to be, uh, early January. So, uh, I, last year, in the middle of the pandemic, I, I was aware of all the people who really didn't know what to do. People were stuck. People were afraid. And around Thanksgiving, I just said, I got to build something. And I had this idea of doing the summit. And I built the whole thing in like four weeks. And I did it all myself. It was just insane. Because I had to build the website and get all the videos and contact everyone. And now I've got an executive team. So Arthur Brewer, who's a composer and web designer, and Heidi K. Begay, who you mentioned, together we are building this. And we've been working on it for months already. And we already have almost 30 presenters. And it's going to be the first weekend in January. I think, that, I think that's uh, 6, 7, 8, or something like that. And again, it will be online. Um, and there will be a couple ticket options based on price but it'll be like a conference and and last year the videos were pre-recorded this time almost all of them are going to be live and we're hoping that there'll be a Q&A element at the end so if you're, you you want to know more but the whole point is to help people take control of their business and you know part of my philosophy is that you're if you're operating as a musician you are a small business owner and you got to know what that means um, and so all of these presentations are actionable and meaning that you can listen to it and you can walk away and there's at least one thing you can do that will help move the needle for you, which 
in the end should mean more money, right? So that you can do what you're doing better and you can keep a roof over your head and food in the fridge and maintain your instrument or whatever it is you need to do from mindset to uh, copyright issues to uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, finding opportunities, new income streams, uh, podcasting, web design, hosting, all of that stuff. It's So all these presentations are like little micro lessons on one facet of being a small business owner, an independent gigging musician today. And it's supposed, we're trying to make it for everyone, not just composers, not just performers, but widely applicable. Uh, and there will be, like I said, a really low cost option. Last year was the free option, but I think we're probably gonna use it on a platform that has a minimum fee just, just to cover the cost. So we're talking just a few dollars. And then like a all access pass like we did last year too, which would allow you to have access to all the videos forever. So you don't actually have to show up <laughs> on the time and date of the presentation. But it's gonna be amazing. The lineup we have already. And we have a keynote speaker this year. Do you, who, who's the, am I allowed to ask who the keynote is? Sure. His name is Drew X. Coles, and he's a professor at a number of places in New York City. I mean, the guy is phenomenal. He's a, he's, he teaches about music entrepreneurship and business, but he, he walks the talk. This guy, he and his wife have built this incredible, they do mostly, to my understanding, wedding band, wedding music kind of stuff. But I mean, they're grossing like six to seven figures a year in New York City. <laughs> and, and so he teaches music business. He's doing it. At, I mean, it's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be really a really cool event. So that's musicsummit.biz. Um, I encourage people to go. You can see the list of presenters that we've already got. You can read about Drew Coles um, and you can get your name on the list. And if you do that, then you'll, we'll be able to let you know right away when tickets go on sale, which is going to be soon. We're solving some problems on the back end right now. By the time this podcast launches, it should be all ready to go. But well, I will definitely be in attendance. Um, Thank you. Is it, is it going to be a similar format last, like last year where it was sort of, um, sort of like an all day thing? Like, cause there was like a, a few hour break in the middle there around noon. Right. Yeah, uh, it'll, well, we, we're not totally sure, uh, either it'll be like one presentation at a time over a couple of days, but we have so many amazing presentations. We might treat it more like a live conference where there'll be like two things happening at once. Okay. And like, like I said, these will be live presentations. So you can go and you can watch someone and then you can ask Q and a and participate just like if you were in a real conference. Um, and yeah, it's going to be phenomenal. And we want this to be helpful. So we're trying to keep the costs low, but also you're going to get, if you get that all access pass, like 25, 30 hours possibly of content. So it's like the investment on the, re what you can get for the investment will be huge. If you apply just a few of the concepts, it should really help you take control, like serve your audience better, make, make more money and make a difference to your community, whatever that means. 
whatever your goal is, there's, there's going to be someone that's going to help you do that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's entirely what I got from it last year and very excited that you're doing it again. Um, and like you had mentioned, I mean, it's, it's definitely for more than just composers. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I could think specifically that Scott Tiggy, the tuba player. Yeah. Scott Teggy. Yeah. Teggy. Yeah. Um, he, his presentation was on building your studio, building your, um, your teaching studio, uh, which was very, very, uh, like sh straightforward, usable advice, you know? Um, I can't think of the right word. It's not, not usable. So yeah, usable, but, um, actionable it, Let's go actionable that. that's a good word actionable advice where if you yep. did these steps it's like that you know that that will more than likely lead to a a, a, a larger studio right yeah and he th that's a guy who's done it and then sarah was on talking about mindset we had another guy talking about mindset and belief and then uh, my friend Shell and I, you know Shell, mm -hmm. talking about some of your money knots and like what are the, the the money hurdles in your mind that are getting in the way from you being able to make a lot of money, and she'll be talking about that again. Um, Arthur Brewer and I have done something interesting recently, and I have to credit Arthur because he pioneered this, but um, creating your own composer and residency program. So Arthur did this with a community band where he lives outside of Portland. And so I did it. I took his model and now I'm a composer in residence for a community band here in Lincoln. And so we're going to give a joint presentation on how, how do you do that? You know, like the idea of working with an ensemble and, and the way we've set it up is like guaranteed performances. They're going to read our pieces. They're going to play them. Um, if COVID allows this band to do everything they have scheduled, I'm going to have many multiple performances of pieces this year and i i have a group to workshop with and i'm gonna write for and it's in your own backyard so why why aren't more composers working with the musicians that are where they're living and here's we're gonna give you a way to do that like here's how you do it <laughs> so it's like that i i have to say garrett i um i already enjoyed the very first ultimate music business summit and you you sold me on this one <laughs> separate from the fact that I already experienced the first one. <laughs> well, it's going to be good. So again, musicsummit.biz and we need to get get you as a supporting podcast on it. You and I will talk when we're done recording. That uh, sounds cool. I'd, I'd be completely honored. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, Garrett. So for the last couple Whew, we've been going for like two hours, two and a, almost two and a half hours. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, um, that's awesome. I like that. <laughs> um, before, before we finish off here, where, so we, you know, we got the music, the ultimate music business summit. How can people contact you? What are your socials? Uh, any other projects or things you want to plug performances? Well, the, <laughs> Uh, the biggest thing I'm building right now is the Music Business Summit, but Heidi K. Begay and I are also trying to serve the community of people who have graduate degrees in music who don't know what to do now. Like they've invested a lot of time and money, and we want to help them make a pivot uh, and be fruitful and in in many ways. So uh, I. I don't know yet where to send you, mm -hmm. but 
if you go to theportfoliocomposer.com, you can listen to my podcast, and that's probably the best way. Get on my mailing list, and so then we can stay in communication. And uh, I have my regular newsletter, which you have generously shared, which I completely missed last week. <laughs> uh, so that's probably the best way to, to do it. Um, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, but honestly, I'm not super active. Um, I'm really kind of sour on social media right now and thinking about just getting off entirely because I think it fosters a lot more negativity than anything else. And I don't, don't want to participate in that. I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you at all. And yeah, uh, one last you know, um, plug for you too is that that the Friday Five newsletter you send out is is so I I every time I get the email I like read it I go to the links it's so useful oh, so good. so many great resources that you provide so I, I highly recommend everyone to sign up for the newsletter um, and you'll you'll be getting a lot of, a, a lot of uh, value from it definitely. You know that means a lot. It really does. Thank you for thank you. Oh, absolutely yeah um yeah man well look Garrett, this has been a really cool conversation i've enjoyed every bit of it um thank you so much for being on here i, I it's it's a real honor especially that i've been listening to the portfolio composer <laughs> podcast for for years and so having you on my podcast is like it's uh it's sort of surreal in a way you know <laughs> it's my pleasure it was just a great conversation even though we kind of got way geeky about woodworking and uh, education and other things <laughs> that, that might be some of my favorite parts <laughs> <laughs> all right well we've got a drink coming in chicago in december oh I, I i love that i i'm i'm ready i'm so looking forward to it